Coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast, CNN is reporting on Canada's vaccine shortage as our case count per capita passes theirs. The U.S. calls for a pause on Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine. Mayor Fred on the lack of vaccine supply. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. My spring break was interrupted by the news. We will continue online learning afterwards. Yeah, baby! Goodbye, lunch bag letdown. My nutrition break options just got a whole lot brighter. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Sorry, I'm coming. I'm here. I uh, he started the show without me. Uh, good afternoon. It is twelve twelve. It is nine hundred CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Uh, big day. Lots to talk about. Uh, there was a fascinating segment on CNN, uh, Jake Tapper, uh, the other day on his show, The Lead. And his tweet is, Canada's vaccine shortage, uh, COVID-19 cases per capita pass the U.S. rate as doctors plead uh, for more vaccines. Uh, we're going to play you this report that was on The Lead, uh, the CNN program with Jake Tapper uh, earlier on, because it's interesting to view others' view of us as opposed to our own view of the situation and what is going on. But, um, you know, once COVID cases per capita pass the U.S. rate, uh, as doctors are pleading for more vaccines, that is certainly a concern. As we had one medical uh, professional on saying, you know, you've really got to look at the deaths, not the case counts. Uh, can't compare apples to oranges. We also have to remember the first six months of this for the United States uh, was very, very dire, simply because the president of the day thought it was all a hoax. So obviously that's where the maximum amount of, of uh, deaths and destruction came were during that a uh, few months there where they were still very much uh, in denial. But here is uh, the segment from uh, Jake Tapper is the lead off of CNN. Some bad news for our, for our neighbors north on our world lead. Canada is now outpacing the United States in terms of coronavirus cases per capita. This is a concerning uptick considering that the Canadian vaccine rollout is not going well at all. By comparison, in the U.S., more than one in three Americans have gotten at least their first shot. In Canada, fewer than one in five received their first shot. CNN's Paula Newton now finds out what's causing Canada's vaccine drought. That's hard to stomach. It's really hard to stomach. Doctors frustrated, exhausted, as a growing third wave of COVID cases spreads across Canada even more serious than the first two. And vaccines are arriving far too late to stem the surge. One horrifying look inside Canadian ICUs filled to capacity and beyond. And it's clear, doctors say, Canada's vaccine shortage is now their problem. We went through a period where we were rapidly trying to immunize our healthcare workers both first and second doses to all of a sudden we're not getting the supply that we thought we would. We have nothing. And it went down to, I remember weeks where there was no vaccine. Vaccines change the game of this pandemic. And Canada is still on the losing end. 
for a country that had categorically claimed to have secured more doses per capita than any other in the world. Doses have not arrived in time, and doctors say the early vaccine drought will cost lives. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says Canada no longer has any domestic production capacity for vaccines. And unlike the U.S. and the U.K., was not able to ramp up domestic manufacturing. So Canadians are at the mercy of imports, not even from their American neighbour, but from Europe. We continue our discussions uh, with the American administration on uh, getting more doses into Canada. The Biden administration sent 1.5 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine to Canada in recent weeks. But there is no announced plan so far to send more. And from Europe, Canada has received more than 8 million total doses. All of it not enough for a country of nearly 38 million people, forcing most Canadians, including frontline workers, to get only one dose, with the second shot postponed as long as four months. That's prompted the head of the world-renowned University of Ottawa Heart Institute to plead with the Ontario government to quickly get a second dose to medical staff. It's not a small problem, uh, Paula. It's not a small problem. People are exhausted. We see staff uh, not coming to work because they may have COVID. They're not so sick. They're not hospitalized. But they have, they have symptoms. They stay home even with a potential one dose. And the weeks ahead will be more gut-wrenching still. Many provinces are now locking down and triaging and transferring patients, activating surge capacity in its healthcare system that is now under threat of COVID-19 like never before. And Jake, look, this is a problem. You have to rewind decades to really get to the heart of this problem, but that doesn't let the Trudeau government off the hook. Uh, they've been in power for more than five years. They heard the dire predictions. This country for decades had a competitive advantage in making vaccines. The research was right here. But look, Canadians will now pay for that complacency. Trudeau promises that domestic manufacturing will ramp up next year. Jake, you and I both know it's just too late at this point in time. This third wave is punishing. I am speaking to doctors, especially in the hotspot of Toronto. You know, Jake, they are letting people into the sick children's hospital, adults, in order to be able to treat them for COVID. Uh, a lot of things to talk about here, including the fact that even though the dire predictions were there, no government acted for decades on the vaccine rollout. Yeah, it's a real failure by the Trudeau government, and our Canadian cousins deserve a lot better. Paula, thank you so much for that. I appreciate your report. All right, that is Paula Newton reporting on Jake Tapper's The Lead on CNN and Jake Tapper's tweet, Canada's vaccine shortage, uh, COVID-19 cases per capita past the U.S. rate as doctors uh, plead for more vaccines. Uh, not so smug about the U.S. now, are we? Uh, and certainly were during the early stages of this pandemic as we fly, uh, stuck our nose up and thought, look at those silly Americans down there. Uh, have no idea what they're doing. This isn't a Fox report. This is from CNN. It's fascinating to see how the world views us differently uh, than we view ourselves. Uh, and again, that not a flattering report for Canada. All right, let's bring in Daniel Ballon, James McGill, Professor of Political Science, Director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada with McGill University and with us now. Daniel, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, and you? I'm doing good. Thank you so much. Your thoughts on this segment on CNN with Jake Tapper? Yeah, it's it's not surprising, but you're right that it's a reversal, uh, total reversal of uh, optics if you compare to uh, what people were saying a year ago or even uh, six months ago. Um, I think that um, the uh, you know the pandemic was really. Uh, 
um, hit the U.S. really, really uh, hardly. And, and I, I think that uh, now things are really improving in the U.S. I have many friends, relatives in the U.S., and uh, most of them, uh, if they are younger than, uh, uh, older than 30, they have been vaccinated at least once, and I know many people who have received two shots. Um, so I think that uh, it's going well there, and uh, it's not going so well here. So um, this is the thing about the pandemic. It, it, it's a volatile situation. Um, things can change on the ground quite rapidly. In the U.S., they have a change in the White House, but also it's just that they have a great, um, you know, uh, uh, pharmaceutical industry with a high level of uh, uh, production capacity, which we lack in Canada. And, um, and we have, uh, I think we, we are paying a price for this. Uh, and and uh, not just compared to uh, the U.S., but compared to other countries like the U.K. that didn't have a very strong, had a relatively weak production capacity uh, a year ago, but decided to invest massively in that uh, to increase their capacity. While in Canada, we decided to just order a lot <laughs> of mm. doses from all these various companies uh, and and waiting for for uh, them to ship uh, the the vaccines to Canada. Uh, we constantly hear when the prime minister is asked about this, you know, how much is coming in in the next couple of weeks, how much is coming in the next couple of months, how much is in the next year, blah, blah, blah. Uh, how will Canadians, how will this U.S. news resonate with Canadians? Well, Canadians like to compare themselves with the U.S. Sometimes it's also a bit of an obsession. And, you know, when the U.S. Were, was doing poorly last year, then we compare uh, Canada to the U.S. But in fact, Canada you know, it's probably better to compare yourself with the leaders in the field. And in that case, we should have compared ourselves with Australia or, or, or Taiwan or New Zealand rather than the U.S., right? Uh, but we compared ourselves with a, a country that was really struggling. Now we are comparing ourselves with countries that are above us in terms of vaccination rate. Uh, that's primarily uh, the, uh, the U.S. because it's our neighbor. The U.K. Uh, is doing very well, too. Um, but we have to understand, too, like there are a lot of countries in which people complain about the fact that the vaccination rate is, is really low or is too low compared to other countries. You know, we are right now, if you look at this, if you talk about the first dose of, of vac uh, vaccine, you know, we, uh, Canada is on par with, you know, countries that are similar to us in terms of their, their level of economic development, like, you know, uh, Ireland, uh, uh, France, we're actually above France, Germany, Belgium, uh, we are doing better than Switzerland, than the Netherlands. So, um, you know, when you compare yourself, you have to look at, at, at different countries. And, um, you know, we are not doing so great. But, of course, if you compare yourself with, uh, uh, with, the, with only the countries that are doing so well, you will see that overall, I think, there is dissatisfaction in many countries in Europe, for example, about the slow uh, rollout in terms of vaccination. And the UK, like the US, have been accused of hoarding uh, vaccine supplies, and they have done that. I mean, one of the reasons we are not doing well in Canada now is that basically we were shut, shut out uh, from you know, vaccine uh, supply by, by the US under Trump. Uh, and that's why we're forced to really focus uh, uh, our, our business with getting, getting vaccines from Europe. From, from, uh, well, let's be honest here, yeah. Daniel. That position yeah. has not changed under no. uh, Biden as well. It's still they get vaccinated first and then Absolutely. us. And, and let's and be honest, too. When, when, if, if we are lucky. 
<laughs> and, and yeah, exactly. We get the leftovers when everybody's finished. Yeah. And and let's you know, you were talking about how we're thirty fourth when it comes to first dose. Uh, we have, you know, we were down to 50th, but now we yeah. pushed ahead of those European countries, which are now livid because their vaccine is going out the door to the highest bidder to places like Canada instead of vaccinating their own people. Yeah. So yeah, as Canada goes up that, that chain, uh, the, the UK, or sorry, the EU gets even more angry because they yeah. produce the stuff and they're selling it to Canada instead of putting it in the arms of their own citizens. Yeah. Uh, they're selling it to the, the highest we, we bidder. Pfizer vaccines, it's made in Belgium. Belgium, and now we are, you know, uh, Belgium is not doing better than us in terms of the first dose. So people are mad that they see that the, the stuff is disappearing. But I think most of the anger was directed at the UK, uh, especially because of the recent Brexit and so forth, um, uh, more than at Canada. But uh, we have to be vigilant. And, and the, the problem, of course, is what they call vaccine nationalism, and it's normal. Uh, Canada, we dropped the ball on, you know, having strong domestic production of vaccines in the mid-1980s. And many governments in, in a row just didn't pay attention to this, even after the SARS crisis, uh, when there was the Naylor report saying we should be ready for the next pandemic. And that will include, you know, strengthening uh, national production of vaccines. We, we failed. We failed to do this. And the Trudeau government at the beginning of this pandemic could add invested way more in you know domestic production and and more aggressively and we have done some steps in that direction but it's 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 slow especially compared to what we've seen in some other countries like the uk so some mistakes were made i think we we emphasize too much or we 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 bet on the this horse which is you know spending a lot of money on these contracts with international companies uh, and, and i think that you know uh, the problem is that we didn't probably expect this strong uh, uh, form of vaccine nationalism, even in Europe. We, we knew the situation in the U.S. We knew well what was happening under Trump. But now, you know, uh, the concern... Again, you really... How can Europe. you call it... How can you call it a vaccine nationalism, Daniel, when Europe is watching them fall below Canada because Canada's paying a higher price for it? I mean, my goodness, it's... it's And, and, and you know, as far as where we are, yeah. uh, you said in the 30s with the first dose, as soon as you add... A, a, you know, let's take a look at everybody who's been fully vaccinated. We drop back down below 50th again as Europe takes off ahead of yeah. us. So um, I, I guess my situation, my question here is, you know, we continually see everybody blame the provinces, yet the prime minister doesn't seem to take the heat for this. How do you explain that? Yeah, because, again, yeah, if you look at the CNN story, it's directed entirely at the prime minister. It's not directed at the provinces. Yeah, while in Canada, if you look at the media coverage, it's, it's, it's different. Um, one thing, though, that you can say, I mean, we focus Are you on saying the- it's biased, Daniel? <laughs> well, I, I think that it, it's a complicated story. I think it depends on the... Right now, the vaccines are coming in, uh, and then it's, you know, the provinces get the blame. But earlier on, there was a lot of criticism of the prime minister in the media. I mean, the opposition were certainly going strong, criticizing the, the Prime Minister, Erin O'Toole, and, and Jack Mead Singh, and so forth. Um, so, so I think that there was, uh, uh, there was a lot of criticism, but now that it's the, the, the shipments are arriving, now we turn towards the provinces. But one thing about vaccines, we're obsessed with vaccines, but there are countries where they actually don't care that much. They have a much lower vaccination rate than we do, like in Australia, but they don't care because... There is very little COVID there because they enacted the proper public health measures. And, and that's important to understand. So the, the, the third wave that we are seeing now is not just about shipments of vaccine. That's not true. 
It's also about public health measures, and the provinces uh, play the most important role there. So I think that it's, it's not one person to blame. I, the federal government has a lot of blame, I think, to, to take here, but the provinces, too. Uh, we can see that the situation is getting out of control in Ontario. We can see things are not doing well in, in, in several western provinces in Quebec. But look at Atlantic Canada. They have done quite well, and vaccination there is less uh, is still a pressing issue, but not as it's not as dramatic as you see in other parts of the country where uh, this third wave is is really deadly. So I think. But again, we have to yeah. remember, Danielle, that you know yeah. uh, uh, that you know the the Maritimes very much like uh, like Australia, an island and a very very small population, and certainly not the diversity of a British Columbia, Alberta, or Ontario. Yeah, but Australia, I think Australia, it's not because it's an island that they, they, they got fewer cases. It's because they adopted some very stringent, stringent public health measures. So as soon as the, you know, they got a few cases, they shut down everything and they reopen. So they, 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 it's not just the, the fact that it's an island. I mean, it's very international, Australia. You know, it's, uh, they have so much ties to China and to Asia. They are, you know... Uh, uh, yeah, but as soon as you yeah. start, stop air travel in and out, bang, you, you're, you're sealed off. Yeah, there are people coming by boats, but that's right. There is no land border, so that certainly that certainly helps. Um, but but still, I think that you know we 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 have to take into account the fact that even if you increase the vaccination rate, um, you, you also need to have you know strong public health measures uh, yeah. to fight the vaccine on the ground until. People, people have two shots each, and that will take uh, quite a bit of time here in this country. Um, but even the UK and the US, they are, it's still a minority of the population who have received two shots. Huh? Uh, so um, they are not out of the woods. Uh, so we have to be careful because these things can change like on a weekly or monthly basis. So right now we look at Canada, we say it's really depressing. But uh, uh, in a month or two from now, things might have improved quite dramatically. That's why we have to be careful. This being said, we have to acknowledge the mistakes that were made by both levels of government. Uh, and some provinces have done better than others, uh, um, and they acted more swiftly. As for the federal government, I think Canada has made some mistakes in the way some of the contracts with the pharmaceutical companies were, were, were set up, and also relying too much on, on, on uh, imports. So, yes, we need to rebuild our, our, our vaccination production capacity, our va- vaccine production capacity, and we should have uh, started in a much bolder way. And I think we can learn from other countries that have uh, really uh, that are ahead of us now. And again, the U.S. is actually not the right place to look because they already had a huge uh, vaccination production capacity. But looking at the U.K., at some other yeah. countries that have done well, uh, mm-hmm. during this pandemic, like Australia, in terms of public health, is, is probably what we should do rather than always looking at the U.S. You know, uh, there are so many other countries we can learn from um, and, and compare ourselves uh, with. Danielle Ballon has been with us. James McGill, Professor of Political Science, Director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada at McGill University. Daniel, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The problem is not in our schools, it is in our community. And bringing our kids back to a congregate setting in school after a week off in the community is a risk that I won't take. 
Uh, obviously, our intention all along has been for kids to return to safely learn in schools. That's been our long-standing commitment. Uh, however, uh, based on discussions we had with Dr. Williams um, and the medical teams over the past hours, needing to act quickly and decisively during COVID-19, uh, we've made this decision, as difficult as it is, with one aim, which is to lower these community rates to get our kids back. Uh, obviously, the big news yesterday, the spring break will continue uh, beyond this week and uh, move to online learning afterwards. Let's bring in Don Danko, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board Chair, and on the line with us now. Don, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. Uh, and it's a pleasure to be on the show. I hope you're keeping well as well. Yeah, you know, as good as we can after uh, 56 weeks. Uh, certainly there's a lot uh, worse off than, than we are at this point. But, uh, Don, talk about what this means for students and parents uh, after uh, spring break. Tell us what you know. Well, you know, it's been a very challenging time, as we all know. Um, I want to just highlight the, the level of uncertainty that we've been working through in the past couple of weeks. And I think, uh, you know, the lead into your segment highlighting what's happening with COVID right now, 56 plus weeks later, with, we never expected to be here last year. Um, and so that uncertainty just continues in that announcement that we're shifting now to remote learning uh, for our families and for our staff next week is just one more change that uh, families are working through. So we're hearing mixed reactions. Some families are saying it's the right thing to do. We're hearing that our hospitals are, are hitting a critical point and we need to do our part. And then other families are saying, this has been a year of uncertainty. I can't miss any more work or I'm going to lose my job. I don't know who's going to take care of my kids or support their online learning because I have to go to work. So um, we really respect that this is going to impact many of our families in a significant way. But we also appreciate getting the announcement now as opposed to later this week. So, yeah, obviously the big question, how do you balance all of this? How do you keep it, uh, you know, how do you make sure you're doing the right thing? Uh, and keeping everybody safe, yet uh, the kids moving forward. Obviously, not the first time for this, Don. Uh, we've been at this before. Uh, what can you take from uh, the first and second wave? And, and you know, we, we knew uh, during the first wave when all of a sudden this was thrown on everybody and the teachers and the parents and the students and everybody had to pivot pretty quickly. And then even over the course of the summer, a huge improvement when we went back to September and, and saw online learning, how it had changed. So what can we expect this time, Don? Because we've been through this and because it's a bit of deja vu, it's a bit of a Groundhog Day scenario, um, we do have plans in place. And so for our board, we were already anticipating and, and thinking about that critical question, should students be back in person after the break? Um, so we, we were already planning ahead to see what would device deployment look like? Um, what does it look like to allow teachers to have some planning time and educators to have planning time for that transition? So we've been through this before. As, as you recall, in January we were there, then the remote learning was extended. Um, I think that this transition will be smoother than what we've seen in the past. But again, I don't want to underestimate the, the serious impacts that this does have for our staff and for our families as they need to shift 
shift and figure out what does their home life look like, uh, who is taking care of their kids and, and that online learning. But um, just to give you an example of one of the things we have to do for next week is deploy devices to students who have a need, and some of those will be internet-enabled for families that need that. In January, we deployed over 6,000 devices, so we're anticipating that to be closer to 7,000 devices going out to uh, students next Monday or Tuesday, and uh, our families will get more information later this week. Uh, Here's another question you can't answer, Don. Any any idea how long this is going to last? Any idea what the criteria is or, or what the next move is here? You know, that's one of the key questions that we've been asking all along. Like when I go back to December, when we heard, no, schools will stay open after the the holidays, and then there was an announcement to shift to remote learning in January. That was supposed to be for two weeks, and then many boards, including ours, were told you're going to extend remote learning until February. So that question keeps coming up. What is the criteria so that we can have some level of prediction? We, We can have some level of here's where the numbers are going or here's the measurable that we need to look at and we can start to plan. Um, I think as we've seen, there there aren't clear data points that anyone is willing to share that would ultimately make a decision. And I think what we're seeing now is that what, what is making the decision is those ICU numbers, the hospitalization numbers. So um, do I think we're going to have any hard clear numbers that show when we hit this point, students will be back in person? No, I don't, because we have not had that information in the past. But at the same time, um, we, we do ask that as soon as possible, can we get back to in-person learning when it's possible, when it's responsible? Um, I'm hoping that this response that our community needs to take seriously, everybody needs to be doing their part to stay at home in this stay-at-home order, um, to isolate we're hoping if we can get those numbers down, we can get back in person. That is a priority for our board. Obviously, with education, we all know it, it's, it, it prides itself on consistency day in, day out. It's there for the kids and in a consistent, a consistent, healthy environment. Obviously, during a pandemic, that kind of goes out the window. Are we asking questions that we know there are real no answers to, or the question you asked today, the answer may be different tomorrow? I would say you're, you've hit the nail on the head there. Um, the, the numbers and the information, um, the trends are all changing. So perhaps it's not an entirely fair question to say, when is it absolutely going to be this step taken? Um, at the same time, I think there there is some level of predictability here. So when I look back to um, when we were coming back into in-person learning in February, I put a note on the fridge. Uh, I was I was guessing, when would we be back in remote learning? And I know a lot of people were speculating, well, is it going to be after March break? March break, break up, moved. Will it be after the spring break? And I would say if that was on a bingo card, I would get my dot um, because it hmm. is predictable. We can see those numbers going up. This is not a surprise. At the same time, what is often a surprise is the messaging leading up to these announcements. Um, so we had really firm messaging that no at all costs, schools will stay open. Yeah, um, that was a total. Year. That was a total botch up with Lecce saying one thing one day, and then by the end of the of the next day, it was something completely different. Uh, certainly, total fault at that. The communication has been um, has been contradictory. We understand things change, but that you, you can totally understand why people are ticked at that. I can, and and I think it's the up and down. Like we're all tired. This has been yeah. a really tough year. We are all at the end of our ropes. And then to have that, okay, I'm certain my kids are staying in person. Now they're not. No, oh, yes they are. Now they're not. That that up and down, that that emotional roller coaster that I know many of our families and staff are going through. 
that just adds to the challenge. So wherever we can provide certainty and some level of predictability or some level of understanding that there is a plan, I think that's going to just help our system and help our families. And then the other piece is the vaccination rollout. That was supposed to be the magical thing that made us stay in person for the rest of this year. And unfortunately, it, as, as your segue into your, your segment here um, mentioned, we don't have the doses that we expected. And the rollout is not moving as quickly as we'd hoped. So I would say that one of the priorities needs to be right now, um, and we've asked public health for this, we've asked the ministry about this, we need to be getting doses not into just any arm, but into the right arms. We need to be considering who are the people that need to leave home to work in a congregate setting. And that includes our education workers. That includes, in particular, a special education workers that have to work closely with students that often can't follow protocols. That has to happen now. And that will protect us um, and allow us, I think, ideally, to go back in person for the end of the school year. That is our hope. All right, Don. any advice for parents uh, as we finish up here? Um, for parents, please make sure that you're looking for the resources that are available. There is emergency child care going to be available, again, for eligible essential workers. There are many mental health resources that you can access both through our website and on the Hamilton website that just help support your kids and check in with them. And there's also um, some additional funding coming from the ministry. If you've applied previously, you'll receive it. The beginning of May, it's around $400 per child or 500 for those with special needs. Don Tanko with us, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board Chair. Don, as always, thanks so much for what you do and all the teachers. We're greatly appreciative of it, and good luck moving forward. Thank you, Scott. Have a great day. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. Send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And as well, the phone lines are always open. Uh, speaking of the phone, Victor's on the line. Victor, what are your thoughts? Uh, afternoon, Scott. How are you today? Good, you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, I just want to start off that I'm not a retail worker uh, at all, um, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, how you look at it. I don't have a lot of contact with the general public uh, currently during this pandemic. However, my thoughts with this whole vaccine process is now, now that schools are at home learning for the indefinite future, possibly for the rest of the school year, teachers, the teachers' federations and the unions have been pushing for teachers to get the vaccine. Now that they're all working from home and teaching on Zoom or Teams or whatnot, do they still need the vaccine as urgently? Why don't we vaccinate our frontline retail workers at grocery stores who have contact with a lot more general public? Wow, you know, there's the big debate, eh, Victor? And and if we didn't have a shortage of vaccine, we wouldn't be discussing this, or would we be discussing uh, the four-month delay in the second dose? Uh, I think here uh, the the objective here, Victor, is to get the kids back into school. So I'm guessing what they'll do is they'll use that opportunity to, in fact, vaccinate uh, the teachers, hoping they can get them all uh, covered and then get the kids back into school uh, before the end of the school year. So my guess is, is um, you know, since they've already said they were going to to commit to that through the March break, sorry, through the spring break, uh, yeah. that that will continue again with the hope of getting kids uh, back in, into uh, school. But again, Victor, as you've mentioned, uh, if we had lots of vaccine, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be having to make these choices. Of course. And uh, thank you for saying that, because honestly, I didn't see it that way. I I'm, I was just seeing, OK, school's out. See you next year see you in September. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's the way I was seeing it. But I didn't see it that way. So thank you very much, Scott. 
Hey, thank you, Victor. Anytime. Uh, phone lines always open, 905-645-3221, start 9900 on your cell. Let's bring in Dr. Zane Chagla, infectious disease specialist with St. Joseph's Hospital and associate professor in the Division of Infectious Disease and Department of Medicine, McMaster University, and with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. No problem. Thanks for having me. So obviously, uh, Canadians, Canada finding itself in, uh, in, in the midst of the third wave, uh, 3,670 new, uh, cases, uh, today. Your thoughts on where we are right now? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a critical point. I mean, I, I am obviously glad things are not flying up out of control and exponential growth, but recognizing that, you know, the, the, the effects of restricted measures and that type of thing, are a couple of weeks from when they're instituted. So we probably haven't seen the highest numbers that we are bound to see in the coming days. Um, you know, I, I, it is going to be a critical time for healthcare, and, and, and we're all feeling the crunch. You know, elective surgeries are winding down. ICU beds are filling up. And so, you know, again, it's going to be a couple of weeks till we even see case counts starting to come down. And then, you know, healthcare utilization probably weeks and weeks after that. Um, you know, it, it, it is going to be a hard time for the hospitals to cope for sure. Uh, we remember talking about this before pretty much every long holiday weekend uh, for the last year or so. Are we seeing, starting to see this post-holiday fallout now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can make the argument it's usually, again, you know, transmission usually happens within the first seven days for most people, up to day 14 for some. We're, you know, seven plus days out of the Easter long weekend. So some of those people are just starting to get ill now and show up to get swapped. Um Again, we still haven't seen what happens when those people unfortunately get worse at about day five to seven into their illness or need ICU at day nine or ten into their illness. That is still, you know, along the path that the next week or two is going to bring. Uh, information coming out today, doctor, about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, uh, the U.S. pausing this uh, for pretty much the same reasons uh, as AstraZeneca. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's obviously not great news. I, I, you know, again, these these numbers are not um, huge. There's been six potential cases of the same side effect in the United States of seven million doses given. Um, you know, in the context of COVID nineteen, that is a uh, larger and larger threat by the day, and people's own risk of dying and being sick from COVID nineteen. You know, the balance is still largely favoring COVID nine. I mean, sorry, vaccination for COVID nineteen and getting the first vaccine possible. Um, you know, th- this is the United States; they're a very high liability area. You know, people are just being careful, seeing that the scope is actually well established, making sure that there's been enough um, uh, investigation into all vaccine side effects to make sure this isn't just more than six per seven million. Right now, based on those numbers, though, you know, your your chance of dying of COVID-19 in, in the world today and acquiring COVID-19 in the world today is still higher than your chance of dying from the vaccine. Uh, and again, you know, some of the analysis from a colleague from mine in Toronto suggested, actually, you're probably getting benefits from this vaccine uh, if you if you um, if you get it in the next day or two, because every day that ticks by is a higher risk of getting COVID-19 and where a vaccine isn't necessarily going to save you. Do you think this pause with J&J will affect uh, Canada's uh, supply? Because obviously that's a part of the puzzle. Yeah, I mean, Janssen has not been particularly great with supply. I and mean, there's been lots of uh, lots of 
regulatory issues. There was issues with uh, uh, at the plant in the United States. And so doses aren't going out as fast as we would like. Um, you know, depending on the risks, uh, it might actually paradoxically give us more doses. I mean, I think in uh, the AstraZeneca rollout, because the U.S. is taking very, very, very um, uh, strong uh, steps to, to go through this for, for the AstraZeneca, we got a million and a half doses and can counsel it. Did we le- in I'm sorry, doctor you, doctor, you just cut out there for a split second. Oh, so if you could just repeat your last sentence. Yeah, yeah. No, so, I mean, again, it paradoxically may give us more doses. If You know, the U.S. is very, very uh, liable prone. And so they're going to necessarily take not take any risk whatsoever. You know, for us, if we're saying one in a million you know, one in a million is an acceptable risk, especially if we can define what groups are at highest risk. If the U.S. pauses it and we continue along, that might give us more supply. And right now, supply is all we need moving forward. Um, we also uh, know that uh, the U.S. has not got to the approval of the AstraZeneca yet. And, and I've talked to people down there and they've said it's not that there's an issue with it. It's just that they don't need it right now because they're overflowing with the others. Uh, are you concerned once they get to AstraZeneca what they're going to say about that if they're saying this about J&J? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think if, if that, that is now a, a thing they have to consider as part of it um, and they have to actually, you know, think about what they um, uh, what they want to do with AstraZeneca and their vaccine rollout. My guess is with three vaccines on the market and a good supply of at least the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, they may not approve the AstraZeneca vaccine, or at least not in a timeline that's applicable to um, uh, uh, people uh, getting uh, getting vaccinated as part of their large-scale vaccine campaign. So, um, you know, they may never approve it, and so be it. More doses can come to us, go to Mexico, go back into the global supply so that other people can benefit from that manufacture. I'm not sure the argument about liability is reassuring to Canadians, though. Yeah, I mean, I think we know, I mean, we all know from TV and otherwise where medical malpractice in the United States is at a, you know, a threshold that is really at a, you know, very, very high level, right? You know, we see those ads on TV, have you taken this drug or that drug and have you had this side effect, right? Whereas I think in Canada, we're a bit more rational about side effect profiles, about risk and benefit discussions, about nuance and that type of thing. And so, you know, unfortunately, those profiles likely inform what kind of practice both countries have with re- with regards to vaccination. So, uh, obviously, Canada in a tough situation right now. Uh, it doesn't appear like we're going to out vaccinate or, or vaccinate ourselves out of the the, uh, the third wave. Uh, what is needed as we move forward and, and supply still relatively limited? I mean, it's still not coming in enough where we can open mass vaccination sites with any consistency. Yeah, I mean, supply, 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 right? I mean, I think that's it. There is some in the fridges, but that is largely earmarked for particular populations, yeah. rollouts, kind of going through it adequately. Um, and, then, you know, I think, you know, what the UK went through when they saw the surge, they unfortunately kept restrictive measures in place and just made sure they had a threshold for vaccines to open up, you know, very well, we, we probably do need that in terms of decompressing our healthcare system. Uh, and then again, having a threshold of 50% vaccinated or 40% vaccinated to get to a point where we can open up carefully and slowly without necessarily having to deal with this type of surge again, and then progressively going out to the future as we get more vaccines. So uh, is more lockdown needed? I mean, we're seeing, and, and this is right the way across the country, BC's in one, Alberta. We, we're obviously seeing the curfew in, in Quebec and Montreal area and such. Do we need more lockdown until we get that supply? 
Yeah, I mean, I think we probably need to curb as much transmission as possible, recognizing that, you know, people are fed up, you know, that's very different than March 2020, where, you know, that fear is going to necessarily keep people in lockdown at home. I, you know, we need to encourage people to do things that are relatively safe, like being outdoors, but also, you know, unfortunately, our, our gauges into society, you know, the big restaurants and that type of thing where they're high risk, there's no buffer for that anymore. And, and so, you know, having more people at home, closing as many non-elective workplaces as possible is going to be important moving forward. There's no buffer in the healthcare system right now in Ontario to deal with more cases. Um, you know, and, and again, all of this is an effort to buy time. This isn't just an endless cycle of lockdowns and non-lockdowns. This is buying time to get to a point where we can at least open up safely with much more of the population being immune. Obviously, we're hearing more and more about the new variants, Doctor, and how they have uh, changed the game, uh, whether they spread more in kids. We're finding out more about that. Uh, it, it appears it spreads faster. It's more contagious. What about is it as deadly? Do we do we know we're hearing reports that certain variants, the B117 variant, not linked to more serious infections? Yeah, there's, there's been papers going left and right about this and different analysis that have uh, taken this. You know, it's very hard to get a complete answer. You have to take patients who got this variant and take patients from like six months ago, try to compare them, try to balance out any other issues like them living in long-term care, them having certain medical conditions, the state of the healthcare system at that point, what treatments we had to offer patients at that point. And so different studies have tried to model this differently. If you look on the balance, though, it does tend to favor more fatal as compared to not. There are some studies that suggest not, but there are studies and more of the balance of the studies and numbers suggesting, yes, there is more fatality. Um, it is obviously confusing to the public to see one paper being published and another piece, paper being published in another direction. At least the data from Ontario, which is probably the more relevant to us, does suggest, yes, this is more deadly 1.6 times as compared to COVID from days past. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I think it does on the balance favor more more complications for sure. And, and again, that's that's unfortunately part of it. And obviously, the third wave different uh, from the first and second in the sense in the fact that uh, long term care has been vaccinated, and we've seen a, a massive decline in infections and deaths in long term care as a result. Uh, more and more chatter about younger people. Yeah, and, and I want to remind people, right? Like vaccines work. We, you know, we pivoted our vaccines into long-term care and older individuals to deal with more transmission and saving them from hospitals. And guess what? You know, we are not seeing people in long-term yeah. care dying or even just very occasionally. Considering where we are in Canada and Ontario right now, long-term care homes should be on fire with everything going on, and yeah. we're not seeing that anymore. The deaths in Canada have declined as compared to this wave from prior waves, where we're only seeing 30 deaths a day as compared to 150 deaths a day at the peak in the last wave. And so, you know, uh, we are definitely seeing younger people involved. You know, they, the good news is, is the younger people have more reserve and may survive this more. We obviously don't want to see them in hostel. We obviously don't want to see them in the ICU. We don't want, obviously don't want to see them with long-term complications of COVID-19, even if they don't die. Uh, and so, you know, this is why this wave is so different. It is the healthcare wave. It is not the long-term care wave. It is not the mass death wave. It is still a struggle for the healthcare system to deal with patients that are sick that will eventually survive. 
But at least, thankfully, with the vaccines where they are today, have they've done something to prevent us from having a lot of deaths right now that were, you know, preventable in, in people that, that, you know, if they had access to vaccines. Uh, we remember earlier on in this pandemic how the United States was just virtually out of control. I remember watching the media down there and thinking they're weeks, months behind us. And, and how that has turned around. Uh, there was a, a recent report uh, with Jake Tapper on CNN about Canada's vaccine shortages and, uh, you know, his headline, COVID-19 cases per capita pass U.S. rate as doctors plead for more vaccines. What are your thoughts that Canada has now passed the U.S. in, in per capita in, in COVID-19 cases? Yeah, I mean, I, I would take that with a grain of salt. You know, that, that really does go with how people are being detected by cases. So if you look at the United States, there are less tests per case than Canada, meaning that, you know, there are less people getting tested in the United States than Canada, meaning that there's probably a lot more people that don't have COVID-19, sorry, that do have COVID-19 that are not getting tested in the United States. So, you know, comparing cases is very hard because it does involve testing behaviors. What I will say and what actually, you know, the U.S. people should be talking about more is if you look at deaths per million in the United States as compared to Canada from COVID-19, despite us not having a vaccine supply, we still have three times less deaths per million people as compared to the United States. The U.S. is 2.02 per million. We're in the 0.8 range. And that is a really big point. With whatever vaccine we've had, we've been able to put it into the right places. We've been doing a reasonable job being trying to protect our elderly. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, we can count cases or we can count deaths. And I think at the end of the day, what's going to be more impactful is the deaths we saved by our efforts. But let's and be so- serious here, doctor. I mean, you know, for the first six months of this pandemic in the United States, they were virtually standing there with their hands in their pockets. Mm-hmm. And, and the president was in complete denial that there even mm-hmm. was uh, such a situation. And that's where the majority of their of their deaths occur. Uh, certainly now it's a different story. Yeah, no, agreed. And, you know, again, they've gone through a a good amount of infection within their communities. There's estimates about 20 to 25 percent of Americans have had COVID-19. So if you add a vaccine to that and you make more of them immune, you know, you're getting to parts where there's 60, 70 percent of the population now that have never seen COVID or that are immune to COVID-19, which, you know, makes it less ability to transmit. I am just saying, you know, listen, on April 9th of 2021, there were still more Americans per capita dying of COVID-19 than there were Canadians dying of COVID-19. Uh, and, and, you know, again, comparing cases is great, but, you know, that is the ultimate measure that, that that matters. Yes, Canada needs a lot more work. We need a lot more vaccines. Our outbreak is getting worse. But the U.S. numbers aren't totally the story in the United States. And there are still a lot of areas that are seeing COVID-19 transmission in the United States that are, you know, still uh, needing more vaccines, more interventions, more hospital stays, more ICUs. They just have a lot more capacity to care for patients, which makes it a whole lot less more concerning when things get out of control. Although they seem to be uh, tapering off uh, as they get vaccinated, we're still on the uh, on mm-hmm. the incline, which is you know very concerning. Uh, Doctor Zane Chagla with us, an infectious disease specialist with St. Joseph's Hospital and an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Disease and Department of Medicine, McMaster University. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. No problem. All the best. Enough of the guests. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. The headline on yesterday's news release by Mayor Fred Eisenberger's office says it all. 
in bold print. Greater Toronto Hamilton area mayors and chairs call for additional COVID-19 vaccine supply. It reads in part, Mayors from the 11 largest municipal governments across the Greater Toronto Hamilton area held their regular meeting to discuss the ongoing response to COVID-19 across the region. As the GTHA faces a third wave, we remain fully committed to our job as municipalities, which is to put as many vaccines into as many arms as we can, as quickly as we can, vaccine supply permitting. As much clarity as possible with respect to vaccine supply is obviously central to our ability to carry out this task. End quote. Again, if Canadians had an adequate supply of vaccine, all of the mass vaccination clinics would be up and firing continuously. Again, if we had an adequate supply of vaccine, we would not be debating who gets the shot first or delaying the second dose for up to four months. Look to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, not the premiers, because every single province is in the same dire situation. Not enough vaccine supply. I'm Scott Thompson. Mayor Fred Eisenberger is on the line. Mayor of Hamilton uh, and has a limited amount of time with him, so I want to get to him uh, right away. Mayor Fred, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, good to be with you, Scott. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been. Uh, hopefully when all this is over, we can get together one day. Uh, that would and, be uh, very much. Yeah. yeah, and speak across the desk as opposed to a phone yeah. line. Uh, let, let's talk about this uh, news release that we all got yesterday from the mayors and chairs of the 11 largest municipalities across the G, mm-hmm. uh, greater Toronto and Hamilton area. What's the purpose of this? What's the message here? Uh, the message is we, uh, we are ready and willing and able and capable of delivering more vaccine, and we certainly encourage the, uh, the federal and provincial governments to do what they can to deliver more. That's the one message, the top message. But the secondary message is that, you know, there's a need to, uh, to bring more vaccine in areas where the cases are the most uh, severe and most uh, contagious. And so, uh, you know, we've got areas like Hamilton, like, uh, like Peel, Brampton, Mississauga, where, you know, the, the lion's share of the cases are happening right now, uh, you know, should that not get, uh, you know, some additional attention in, in terms of the vaccine, because that actually helps the entire province knock down the, the, the spread of the virus. So that, that really is the secondary message is let's, let's prioritize those areas where the cases are the highest to have, uh, you know, maximum impact in terms of stopping the spread of this virus. And so Hamilton, uh, you know, we have some hot spots identified, and that's a good thing. Uh, clearly, uh, all of Brampton has been identified to, to some degree as a, a hotspot overall because of the high caseloads they're experiencing there. And so uh, I think we'd like to see more of that uh, targeted um, uh, approach in terms of delivering vaccines where the need is the greatest. Obviously, when this all started, Mayor, it was an age thing, uh, starting with long-term care and then moving down uh, in increments of five years and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. now more concern as more vaccine came in over the the uh, holiday weekend. Uh, uh, now more concern on those specific areas, as you are uh, mentioning. Do we have enough supply to start to start doing that? To start hitting these certain areas, or are you concerned that takes away from the other process of of slowly moving down in age increments? <laughs> well, I mean, I think uh, I think we're 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 kind of caught between the, the two. I think the 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 overall strategy has been and should continue to be. Uh, getting the vaccine into individuals that are at highest risk. 
And so up, up until now, that's been largely uh, age-based. And so we know that folks living in congregate settings that are 70-plus or 75-plus uh, in long-term care homes uh, you know, have been at highest risk, and they've, they've largely been vaccinated at this point. Uh, the staff in those locations have been uh, given the, uh, the opportunity to uh, to get vaccinated as well, and we're hoping that uh, more avail themselves of the opportunity to get vaccinated. And then we kind of started flipping into age categories, but also into, you know, still, where are the highest risk categories? And, you know, up until now, it's been considered to be age, but age is now being somewhat muted because we're seeing the uh, 60% of the cases in the, in the age 20 to 50 age bracket now coming into hospital and getting care or getting COVID. And so the age factor now is becoming a little different. Uh, we have uh, identified the next phase, which is phase two of the provincial protocol for delivering the vaccine. And there's some 237,000 people in that phase in the city of Hamilton. So to date, we've vaccinated 120,000 people, predominantly high risk or essential employees that have you know frequent contact in the broader community there are more of them that need to be done but we're still staying focused on where the highest risk is based on the data that we have and that certainly then leads to you know lots of uh, you know various organizations saying well aren't we higher risk than you know i I, i'm not going to point them out but but we have that kind of activity going on and that makes it doubly complicated in terms of where, where where do we go first and most the province put out a pretty specific uh, protocol in terms of how this is to be done. Uh, I think it's the only way to do this. And right now, that's morphing into still folks with uh, that are of a younger age but have underlying health issues as being the most at risk right now. And that's certainly a cohort that has some 80,000 people in it here in Hamilton. And that's certainly something that we're going to continue to focus on as well. Uh, we all know of the, the, the mass clinics that are opening up. Uh, First Ontario Centre, greatest example. Are all of these facilities running at their maximum capacity? No, uh, they, they, they could be if we had vaccine supply to, uh, to run them at maximum capacity, and that's just not the case. So we're, we're limited by the, the, the supply chain. Uh, we can only administer what we have. Uh, we have actually, you know, stalled opening up the Rosedale Arena, which is our, our secondary mass vaccination site. That uh, you know, we just don't have enough vaccines, so it would be kind of a false, false setup to uh, to have people standing there, but nobody there to book appointments for because the vaccine isn't available. So we're we're measuring our our capacity with the demand that's out there and the supply that's available. And, you know, the demand is endless. Uh, everyone wants to get vaccinated yesterday. I understand that. There's, a, you know, a lot of anxiety out there. Unfortunately, as much as we would like to be able to do that, we just do not have the vaccine supply to be able to get up to maximum capability. And I think we, our local capability could be in the area of all in some 10,000 folks per day. Um, the good news is that, you know, 120,000 folks have been vaccinated to date with the first dose. And we are booking... Uh, into May now, because unfortunately, uh, all of our April bookings are are, are identified and uh, the vaccines uh, labeled for those those booking appointments. So we're going to need more vaccines. So we're now booking into May when the next round of available vaccine will come be coming to us that will allow us to vaccinate more people as they're booking. All right. Uh, for those listening, uh, maybe confused and such, how do we who's eligible here in Hamilton? How do we get it? 
Well, the way we have, uh, you know, various hotspots identified. I'm, I don't have them all off the top mm-hmm. of my head. There's two lower city, two lower city hotspots that uh, that are available. Three, I'm sorry, three lower city that are available through phone. Uh, so the phone hotline that uh, we've been using, and then there's two on the mountain that are available through the online booking process. And I know that's confusing for people. We've asked the province to put uh, the three lower city hot spots on the online booking system and so far they've declined to do that and then we are uh, looking at um, you know still filling in a lot of bookings from folks uh, in the age categories that haven't yet got their uh, vaccine and and looking at uh, 60 plus uh, individuals are now eligible to book and uh, that bookings again have filled up but so their their appointments as of now maybe in may or maybe uh, later in may because we don't have vaccine supply until then and then there's the astrazeneca process through the pharmacies that allows people 55 uh, 55 plus to book an appointment through pharmacies select pharmacies throughout the city so they're available as well and um they, they they need to deal directly with the pharmacy in terms of getting a booking through that process I know you got to run, Mayor. One quick last question. Uh, yep. Now that we're focusing on various hotspots, and rightly so, uh, are, do you anticipate the age dropping below 60 soon? Uh, if the supply gets here, uh, uh, you know, I don't know what soon is. Uh, you know, right now, we're, as I mentioned to you, we're booking with the available categories, uh, you know, beginning in May. So uh, we've got supply up until that point. I anticipate that by by early May, mid May, we will be dropping the age by, because we'll have more supply at that point in time. So it's it's kind of a rolling average, and uh, as supply comes in, we'll we'll open up more bookings, and uh, you know the age category will start to drop as well. Uh, Fred Eisenberg has been with us, Mayor of Hamilton, talking about the vaccine rollout and a uh, letter from uh, various mayors throughout the greater Toronto-Hamilton area and what they need to get these vaccine clinics up and running. Uh, Mayor Fred, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good luck. You too. Thank you. Appreciate it. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.